God bless guys and welcome back to Research Podcast. Today we continue on from where we started off last time we were together in 1st John and as I mentioned to you last time we did start a new section in the book in which John is addressing primarily the sonship of all believers. Um, but before we delve into uh, what we got planned for today, as usual, let's kind of remind ourselves of what we've previously considered. Uh, in the last episode, we focused on the word confidence, if you recall, and that was in relation to the appearance of Jesus. And we noted that there are <clears throat> there are two possible responses that we are, that are given in terms of when we face Him face to face when we encounter the Lord and and they are either you shrink away in shame or you stand in confidence. And we know that that the expression of shame uh, really shouldn't be limited to an emotional response, but rather a position, uh, a positional reality, meaning that one doesn't need to feel ashamed about the wrongs that we do for there are many people, you know, I'm sure we can point them out who do a atrocious things and feel no shame, feel no, no remorse for it. You know, uh, but when, when scripture deals with shame, it is not in relation to one's emotion or how, how remorseful they are, but rather one's position before another. They are in shame. As an example, I guess, that we could use, we could consider the parable of the prodigal son, one, uh, one parable that is very familiar to all of us. Uh, if you recall in that story, um, if you consider that story, the prodigal son who, by his actions, really brought shame upon his family and in particular his father, yet the son felt no remorse about it. Quite the opposite. He enjoyed himself in it. You know, despite, despite how he felt, he had no shame uh, about what he did. Like It didn't really matter. He had shamed, nonetheless, his family um, and particularly his father. And it's the same with all who have fallen short of the glory of God, we have brought shame. And as such, we all face the wrath of God. We have brought shame upon ourselves. We have brought shame. We, we marred His name. We, we blaspheme Him. So there's, <clears throat> there is, however, an alternative response to shame, and that is confidence. And that's what we saw last time, as John puts it. And the question we must, must ask, however is in what uh, what do we place our confidence in? What is it that uh, we are trusting in? What are we, what are we placing our confidence? Uh, is it in ourselves, uh, our achievements, our righteousness, our moral living? What are the things that we ground ourselves on? What is it the hope that we have in? Scripture by and large is clear on this, that our confidence ought to be placed entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ. We have confidence in possessing a righteousness that permits us to stand before Christ uh, in all confidence, right? Because it is a confidence or it is a righteousness rather that has been imputed onto us, meaning that the righteousness that we possess or are clothed in, as it were, does not originate from within us, but rather it is foreign. It is from Christ himself. It is his righteousness that we bear. So if we could kind of return back to the prodigal son for a moment, the parable there, uh, we could use the story uh, allegorically, if you would, as an illustration of what we've just been describing him. You know, we recall from the story that after he had come to his senses, as scripture puts it, and returned to the father, the father called 
for the feast, you know, this feast celebration because his son had returned, if you recall. You know, the son had requ requested of the father to return back home, but he didn't want to come back as just, um, you know, he knew that he had done something wrong. And so he requested his from his father that he could embrace him back, but as a servant. And however, scripture was, you know, the way that Christ tells this parable is so wonderful because that request was denied by the father. Instead, the father who had every right to put his son to death. And I say that not in a metaphorical way. You know, when we when your kid does something, and you're like, I'm going to kill you. No, it, it, it's in a legal way. Right. I'm talking about legally speaking. He had every right to put his son to death. Nevertheless, um, we see that. His father clothes him in, in a robe and gave him a ring and embraced him as his son, whom he once considered as being good as dead. He says, you know, my son has returned. His son who, who once was dead is now alive. So the moment we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are brought back from death to life. And so we can stand. This is, this is really a beautiful picture of, of being clothed in the righteousness of God. That we can have this confidence when we see Him face to face. Because our confidence is not in our ability, in our good deeds, in whatever it is. It is purely in the fact that Jesus has done a wonderful and perfect work at the cross. And this is what we're going to be kind of considering today in the prescribed portion with that in mind, let us kind of turn to the text that we're going to be meditating on for today. We're going to be reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And I'm going to do my best to, to focus on these three verses, but I do want to really focus on verse 1, at least for now. As it does lay, as always, generally speaking. Um lay the foundation for, for what we're going to be unpacking, what follows. So the Word of God says this, First John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. The Word of God says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And we'll leave it there. Amen. <coughs> there, are, there are not too many things in life, I believe, that, um, that can really crush a person's soul more than a sense of loneliness or a sense of not belonging. You know, in Western civilization, I guess the society that we live in has really masterfully indoctrinated the masses into believing that dependency upon self for happiness is actually achievable in a genuine way. Many people have convinced themselves that this is the way to go in terms of the way to live our lives or to perceive the world. It is purely by focusing on our own happiness. A perspective where giving to self all that self desires is painted as though it is a healthy thing, right? Because after all, what makes you happy is what makes you happy. 
And it's, it's this circular reasoning that leads us to really isolate oneself from the rest of humanity. It breeds and spreads like a contagious virus, this mindsetting, this, this, this perspective of really let's just focus in on what makes me happy and let's kind of exclude everything else. That everything starts from the self. Everything stems from yourself. You can bring forth from within yourself a fountain of joy, a fountain of, of happiness, uh, purpose and and, and vision and what have you, it all can flow out from the self. That's what we are, are told or indoctrinated by by Western civilization. From this, uh, it really kind of births out from this consumerism, right? Mentality. And I mean, of course, that is what they will preach to us because, mate, we need to make money. And yet, it is undeniable that we uh, are social beings at the same time. Right, though we want to maintain or focus our joy primarily um, upon ourselves, we need to realize, and, and I'm sure we have, we know this, that we are social beings created with the purpose of for community. We must connect with others on a social level, even if it has become artificial and manufactured. I mean, obviously, I'm referring to to um, the way we are so. Uh, addicted to social media, right? Of course, like things such as Facebook and Instagram and what have you. I mean, all those platforms are designed for community and social interaction. Now, I'm not condemning them as evil. They they are, they def- definitely are highly useful when used cautiously. It, it can, however, become dangerous when, when that substitutes a genuine social experience where you can see the person face to face, where you can kind of pick up on facial expressions that expose genuine emotion. You know, when the touch of another person can, can bring a sense of healing, you know, it, it, I don't know if, if, if I'm making sense, albeit that, that, that it's temporary, but that, that, need for a connection with other people is is embedded in our DNA. We need this. The experience is felt. The experience is shared. The experience is remembered. Something that cannot be lived out from behind a screen or a monitor. You know, we, we... we can now have more time focusing. I mean, this is one of the benefits of having social media. Um, the world has shrunk, right? So the cousins that live overseas, I can I can stay in communication with them. It, it's been a blessing in that regards. You know, we, we now have a little bit more time to free up because, you know, uh, it's just a quick text or whatever it is, a, a quick Snapchat, whatever. But it's opened up a little bit more time of focusing on the self. That's really what we use it for. Even now, social media, it becomes the platform of where we share our own life and it becomes really about the self, right? We are focusing on ourself while we fabricate an artificial social construct that can never replace the real thing and that's really where the the issue comes down to and because it leads to an increase of anxiety of depression and as i've mentioned earlier loneliness and a sense of not belonging when we 
fully devote ourselves to these type of measures where we go to these extremes, this is the outcome. This is what we've seen in our society. The things that are designed to make us happier really are increasing anxiety and depression. As we rapidly remove ourselves further and further away into isolation, all that self-love we want to give to ourselves will never really satisfy, never bring fulfillment or the feeling of belonging. It cannot do that. By disconnecting from those who genuinely love us or, or those who potentially could love us, our sense of purpose, purpose diminishes, our happiness decreases, and our overall health declines. And this is just dealing with our horizontal relationships. I mean, by that I mean our relationships between other human beings because we are so self-centered and so self-focused where it's all about the self. How much more then is our relationship to God affected by our sin in, in relations to our selfishness that really isolates us from God? Well, Scripture de describes us as, as being dead because of this. That is that we are unable to respond. We have no capability, let alone a desire for a relationship with God. Our relationship with the one being that truly matters is not only distant, but rather it is also one in which we are rebellious towards. We don't have any desire for him. We hate him. We despise him and wish him to be non-existent. If we ought to be concerned about the ramifications that an isolationist mentality can, can have on our general well-being, how much more should we be concerned with our relationship towards God? It is undisputable. It is an undisputable fact that human beings are socially dependent on one another. And yet, in our highly intelligible society, we have created a counterfeit or a replacement for that obvious need for interaction through these artificial social medias that do not meet the needs on a fundamental level. And we have, <clears throat> we have done the same with our relationship with God. We create artificial gods, counterfeit gods that are not gods at all. We submit to them and give them our absolute allegiance, thinking that they have the capability to offer us the love that we so desperately need. Our society cries out, love is love, foolishly thinking that all types of love are actually good or of, of the same quality. I've just argued that our pursuit for self-love, one of many different types of gods that we replace the real living God with, that's you know, generally ourselves that we replace God with, has led us to this unhealthy lifestyle. There is only one to whom we can go. There is only one to whom we can go to for that love that replenishes and satisfies. And that is our Creator, our God. It is with this in mind that I want to turn to the scriptures. This is the kind of the, the foundation that I want to kind of focus on from the perspective that I want to look at this scripture. It is this need. We need this. This is fundamentally more important than mental health. 
then physical health, this, this uh, relationship that needs to be mended and has been through Christ, can be through Christ. So let us look at verse 1 once again. And like I said, this is, I, I hope to move on from verse 1, but I, I fear that I'm going to spend most of my time here. Verse 1 says, They see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. I want to begin by focusing on the very first word here that really sets the tone for this verse. But before I do, it's important that, that we recognize the fact that John is specifically addressing the Christian believer only. What he has to say here uh, is exclusive to those who have been regenerated, who have received this regenerational work uh, done in them that allows them really to understand these realities. So he's also at the same time, keep in mind that he's working with a contrast between the believer and the non-believer, you know, the distinction between those that are his children, you know, referring to God against those who are not. And so he's working with that contrast and he's going to flesh this out a little bit more in the verses to come. But let's return to the initial word that John begins this verse with. And the word is see, that is look perceive, right? So the word see, the first thing that I want to point out to you about this word is the word, the word that he's using here is an imperative in nature. It is imperative, meaning that it is a commandment. He's telling us to do something. It's an, it, it's instructive. It's telling us to take action. And that action is obviously to see. It is a core to purposely set our gaze upon something, to fix our sight or focus our attention upon a singular truth or reality. The instruction that John gives to see logically implies a reality. What I mean by this is that John, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would not instruct us to see something that really isn't there for us to see to begin with. Right? That just doesn't, that wouldn't make sense. It would be pointless and it would bear no fruit. But since he commands us to see, then what we are called to see is not hidden to us, but rather it is made evident to us. To put it negatively, I guess, it, this also suggests to us that we don't consistently see this truth or reality that John is speaking of here. Because if we did see it on a regular or focused on it, then the imperative would be needless. In other words, the fact that we are instructed to do something suggests to us that we don't do it as often as we should. It says, see. Now, having said that, what is it that, that we are called to look at? What is it that John is drawing our attention to? What does he want us to see or focus on? What is this reality to which John is attempting us to fix our mind's eye upon? This is explained in the preceding words. See what kind of love the Father has. So the reality that John instructs the believer to meditate upon is the love of the Father. What I want to focus on here is the second word here is, is kind. The kind of love, this word kind. Now we know that what is in focus is the love of God. 
But John adds this precursor that helps to clarify a distinction through, through the use of the word kind. See what kind of love. Kind. What this simply means is that God is identifying that the love of the Father is of a different kind of love, not found elsewhere. There is a unique sense to the love that God has to offer. This is obviously not explicitly said, but it is definitely implied in that word kind, making a distinction. Though it is not explicitly said, it is, however, its effect I guess, of, of what he's saying is, is exemplified in the distinctions between those who are his children versus those who are not his children, which we'll get to shortly. But for now, let's acknowledge that, that there is a distinctive nature to the love of God towards the believer, and that is not given to the non-believer. There is a distinction being made here in, in that word kind. Now, this is where many people kind of get confused or sometimes just straight out reject this truth. Many people agree that God, yes, God is love. We believe that everyone who, who has a concept of, of the existence of God, they say, yeah, if, if God exists, then God would be loving. Well, scripture is clear that he is indeed a God of love. However, John makes a, a statement as, as clear as possible he, he, that really kind of defines God. He doesn't just say that God is, is a loving God or God expresses love. He goes straight to the fact that God is love by nature. That is who he is. That he, he doesn't just express love. No, no, no. That he is by nature love. Now we acknowledge that God is love and obviously is loving because of his nature. But the distinction must be made clear. Scripture not only gives us a variety of different types of love, in the, like in the Greek language, that, that pertain to specific certain relationships, just a, as a form of example, like eros, right, which is that intimate love or that sexual attraction that, that generally, you know, goes between a husband and a wife, right? So it's, it's actually from this word that we get the word erotic. It comes from there. So we, we have also the word phileo, right, from where we, we get the love there that, that describes the loving bond between a brotherhood. And of course, we have the, the word agape. I'm sure where most of us are familiar with that, that love, that selfless love that is usually utilized to describe the love of God for his children. But those different types of relational loves aside, putting that aside for a moment, this word is not speaking about the different types of love, but rather the quality of that love, this specific love. The distinction is in the quality, not in the type. That comes later when he uses the word agape for, for, the, you know, for love in this verse. But when we think upon the love of God, we need to realize that there are differences in the way that God loves the believer in comparison to the way he loves the non-believer. Theologians refer to this distinction as one being the benevolent love of God versus the complacent love of God. The benevolent love of God can be uh, found in the example of, of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, where, where Christ speaks of how God in his love allows the rain to fall on both the sinner and the saint. Whether they deserve it or not, he still pours out that love to them. He still provides them with their needs for everyday living. However, though, 
or you know, or do receive this love, this common grace, as it is, it it's also referred to as. You know, it could be known as common grace or benevolent love, as it can be sometimes called. Um, not all receive, however, his complacent love. This kind of love is specific in its purpose. It is driven by the desire to bring forth salvation to the recipient. It is effective in its delivery that it will never return void. It will never miss the mark, but will always accomplish what it has set out to do. And that is bring salvation. So in this regard, not all of humanity become recipients of such a quality of love. This kind of love, this, this, um, this complacent love of God. At this moment, it's important to note that no one, however, is deserving of neither of these loves. We are not deserving of the, ben, uh, the, the, benev- uh, the, the common grace love of God, uh, the benevolent love of God, let alone the complacent love of God. Both are given out of mercy, out of God's mercy towards humanity. So we now have made these clear distinctions that it is only the believer who are possessors of such a love, this kind of love, this specific love, this um, love that, that has a purpose in it. Uh, and, and secondly, that this love ought to be distinguished between the love God has to the non-believer with that special kind of love that he has specifically given to his elect. Now we move on to another element that John kind of refers to us or offers us in this verse. He makes he, he moves on to describing to us what this kind of love is, like how we can uh, perceive this kind of love. He relates it to something that we can kind of understand as human beings. So he describes it as the kind of love a father has for his children. Right, so he's kind of getting more specific, and he give, he's giving us a, an example that we can kind of base our understanding of this quality of love, this kind of love that John is referring to here about the love of the Father, about the love of God. Now, before we move on to further distinctions that, that John is about to make, he makes in this verse, in the preceding verses, I wish to point out to you that this fatherly kind of love is one that is given; it is not earned. It is given by grace. It is not earned. It is not achieved. It is not, is, there's nothing that we can do. And it's so important that we state this because many make the mistake that firstly, first of all, people think that everyone, every human being is a child of God. And that is not what scripture says. We have to make a, a clarification here that not all of God's creation is God's children. Yes, we are all his creation, but not all are his sons and daughters. That relationship is reserved only for the elect, those who are his. Another lie that many people kind of have believed is that we can earn our way into that eternal relationship, right? If we do the right things, we can work our way into becoming sons or daughters of God. And that is simply not true. You know, this new relationship is is given by the Father to those whom He delights to give this kind of love to. Okay, it's so important that we get that. But the other thing that I wish to point out to you here is that John ends with what we started with. That phrase, and so we are. 
and so we are. So if you recall, we suggested that the imperative to see what kind of love the Father has given to us implies the reality of that love that we don't have to guess or assume. Instead, we are, we are called to focus on it because the reality of it is there. It is there. And you see that John gives us this kind of exclamation mark here at this point when he says that, and so we are, we are loved in this way. We are children of God. There lies within the phrase, this phrase, a sense of assurance that is not grounded in and of ourselves, but rather in who he is. We can have this sense of assurance. We who are believers, confessors or members of his church are in fact, without a doubt, his children. We never step out of that. We never break from that relationship. We will become children. When we become children, we remain His children for all eternity. He has made Himself to be our Father through the work of His Son. And He has transformed us so that we can become His children. All right? We are His children. And we become beneficiaries of His love as His children. In short, we are adopted into his, into his family. Though at one stage we were not, we have been legally made His children and relationally, not just legally. It isn't just on paper, as it were, but He is our Father. And thus we cry out, Abba Father, through the Spirit that He has given us. And this is the kind of love that the Father has for His children. It is the outpouring of Himself for a people who are utterly non-deserving of it to begin with. It is the full measure of His love that we receive through Christ. If we have any doubt in our relationship to the Father, all we really need to do is what John has already suggested us to do. And that is to see what kind of love the Father has given us. Turn to that love. Look to that love. But where do we turn to see this fatherly kind of love? Where is it that I must turn to, to see and feel and be embraced by this love? It is at the cross of His Son, where His beloved Son in whom He was, was and is well pleased. Words that we could never fully comprehend, by the way. It was there where he offered him up as a sacrifice for us. If the offering of his own son is not enough for you to see that the love he has given in full measure for you, for his glory, then you're not one of his. If you can't look to the cross and feel and, and sense that overwhelming, empowering love of the Father as you turn to the cross, then you are not His children. If you can look at the cross and be indifferent to the cross, then you are not His children. You are not His child. Because John says, when you see there, you will see the kind of love that the Father has given you. But if you're indifferent, then He hasn't given it to you. When you turn to the cross, 
You cannot help but be moved by the sheer raw love of the Father at the cross. The purest, unadulterated love. This is the genuine article and not a cheap knockoff. This is the real deal. This is the kind of love that all other counterfeits copy from, but never are able to duplicate. This is the love that we are all in need of, but we reject it in our rebellion, in our sin. This is the positive outcome of becoming adopted children of God. It is wonderful. We become recipients of his complacent love, his uh, salvific love. That means that, that, that the purpose of this love is to bring salvation. That's the positive. But there is a ne negative side to this that really isn't a negative. But in this world, you know, I mean, in light of what we receive, really, it's, an, it's a non-issue. But for, for sake of just presenting it the way that John presents it, you see the negative aspect of, it, of this. And this is where the end of this verse kind of begins to explore and continues throughout, throughout the rest of the section that we are looking at. So because, this, because we've taken so much time and just on this verse, we won't be spending too much time on this, but I will read the rest of this verse and the rest of all the way to verse 3, and then we'll just kind of focus on the end of verse 1, really. But he says this, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure we have noted that those who receive this kind of love from the father we we, we can meditate on this love and we can draw strength from it we receive extract joy we extract peace from knowing that we have become his children, that we've been adopted into his family, that he becomes our father and that Christ is our older brother. But with such a love comes also a great hostility from those who are not recipients of this kind of love. Those who remain only under the, the benevolent love of God, those who remain in, in the, just the, the common grace, if you will, remain also as his enemies. And ours, and in their rebellious heart, they reject God, and as a result, they will also reject us. They rem they remain hostile to towards the one who sends them the rain. Essentially, they despise him. And we see in a micro perspective, I guess, of this this nature of man. I guess in the parable of of Jesus when he tells us concerning the rejection. Of, of the hearts of the Pharisees towards Jesus. You know, he exposes the parallel between them and the ancient people of Israel. When God, if you recall, would send them prophets, Jesus was speaking, you know, you, God would send you prophets, but it, what did you do with them? You would just kill them off. And the way that they responded to the prophets of old was the same way that they were responding to the Son of God. These Pharisees were, were rejecting the Son of God. Right, And so the logic goes that if this is how they treated the servants of the Lord, 
you know, the prophets. And this is how they treated the Lord himself. What difference should we, the church, expect in our day? And the answer is simple. None whatsoever. Those who are now adopted children of God are born behind the enemy lines. There is no safe havens for the, for the, for the children of God, for, for the Christian. We are in the midst of the war and not away from it. Whenever we engage the world and the culture of the day with the gospel, we too place ourselves in that same potential danger. John puts it this way, saying that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And I'm inclined to say to you that this knowing goes beyond acknowledging our existence, but rather it delves into the realm of acceptance and being liked. And like I said, it, it, it really speaks about us being received and loved and welcomed, this knowing. And I say this based on the use of the word ginoske, right? From, from the, the, the root word here is you know, ginosko, uh, which we've previously covered in, in previous occasions that that specific word deals with affection more than intellectual or recognition of one, one's uh, existence. So the thought is simple. And this, with this I'll wrap. Like I said, we won't have time. But the thought is simple. If we see the love of God, the love that he has, the kind of love that he has as a father loves his child, as John instructs us, when we look to the cross, when we see this kind of love, it seems to me that we would be drawn to some form of action. Though it is not stated explicitly or specifically what that action might be, we are given the response that the world retaliates with. And it's the copy and paste response that it was to the prophets, that it was to the son of uh, man, right? Or the son of God, that it was the same uh, feedback that the, the apostles uh, received. It was the same form of treatment that the, that the early church re received. So we can see that. It's not difficult from here to, to kind of realize what it was that the Lord and all the prophets did to agitate this response. To see what the apostles and the early church did that got them to kind of become enemies of the, of the state, right? We can easily see what it was. It, it's, it's the same thing for us today. That when we face or realize this immense love that the Father has, we can't be, we can't help ourselves but run towards our enemies with this good news, with this gospel. But what will we face when we do? Will we be welcomed with opened arms? Of course not. What we expect is revolt. Just like the prophets. Just like the son of man. Just like the apostles. Just like the early church and us today. Now we won't be able to finish off verse 2 and 3. We have already gone over the, my time. I've spent most of my time unpacking this verse. I hope to continue on next time with this, but just to tie this all up together. We began by acknowledging that there is a fundamental need inbuilt in us, in all human beings, right? Some essentials that we cannot live without. We, we know that we need water and food for sustenance, a home and a bed to rest, uh, you know, and, and a drive to go out to work and do all these essential things, right? And sometimes 
we have more than enough to meet those essentials and we splurge on things that splurge on things on, on that we just want and enjoy and, and by the grace of God we, we are able to do that. And this is what is common, at least in the greater Western civilization. We have these things, but alongside these physical essentials, we have these spiritual needs, not just the psychological ones, but also the spiritual, such as love. It, it, it is so necessary. We need this. We, we supplement it. We replace it with all these artificial and counterfeits that we've constructed with ourselves, thinking that this is what's going to deliver us. This is what's going to cure that pain. This is what's going to deliver me from this sense of anxiety or this, this, uh, this heart that is constantly broken and depressed. It's going to relieve me from this. If I could just focus on myself, if I could just concentrate on my, my self-love, if I could just zero in on me and, and neglect everything else and abandon community and abandon God and, and just focus on me, then I'm going to be okay. I can self-medicate. I can self-help, right? All those self-helps. I can come in and, 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 and fix my broken self. That's not what scripture tells us. No. In our pursuit of, of such a love, we have neglected the very source of what real love is. All these self-helps, all these things, really what we're trying to do, what we think we're doing is, is helping ourselves. Really, we're just putting a band-aid on a, on a deadly wound, an internal deadly wound, and think that we're good when we're not. And the effects of pursuing such counterfeits uh, are, are evident in our society with the increasing rate of depression and anxiety and suicide. At what point shall we stop and realize that these superficial loves never deliver in what they promise? They never bring the promised happiness that they offer. We all look for that community in where we feel like we belong. Like we fit in. We all look for that in, in, in our social groups. And, and the world offers us all these hollow versions of love. And all of them are empty promises that do not fulfill or satisfy. They never do. Because it isn't the genuine love, that real love, the source of real love. And John is calling us to see, look at this love. Concentrate on this love. Focus on this love. That at the cross, God has shown us His love. But for as long as you continue to pursue in yourself, love, self-medication, you know, all these these external counterfeits that never really satisfy as long as you look to that you will never see the cross as where God shows his fatherly love but God is calling us out of that to those who are his children those who have ease let him hear oh I pray that as you hear this that God is bringing you to life giving you ease to hear because he will call you out and you will respond. And as John is calling us here, to those believers, to those who are his children, he says, see the kind of love the Father has for us. 
to those who are of the family of God. The kind of love that the Father has given us sustains us through all our trials and carries us into eternity. His love is the genuine article and nothing can compare. It is a love that is offered freely, but it came at a high price. The world may not know us, but He does. And what more is there to say than that? What more can we say than, than that? Have you seen His love? Have you been made aware of this love? Have you experienced this love? Have you tasted this love? He has offered it up in His Son at the cross. Would you look to it and see the kind of love the Father has given us? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just pray, Lord, that as we look at the issues of our society and we meditate upon the condition, the spiritual condition that, that our society is in, where we are so self-focused, so where we want to help ourselves, where we go into measures where really does not do anything fundamentally real or profound in our lives. It really just on a su superficial surface level, the externals looks like we're happy, but internally we go home and cry ourselves to sleep. With that sense of lack of purpose, that sense of lack of not belonging um, overwhelms us. Lord, you, you in your word, you are calling us to a love that is genuine, a real love, a reality that is beyond our comprehension, a love that, that we will never fully understand because the way you poured yourself out at the cross, you came and you died on the cross, O oh Jesus, willingly so that we could be reunited once again that we can experience the love that the father has for us is the same love that the father has for jesus what a thought i pray O oh god that you will bless this i pray O oh god that you'd be glorified through this we ask this in jesus name amen